One of the Pharisees asked to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her, the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, he answered, say it, teacher. Well, good morning, church. First of all, let me apologize. I apparently fat-fingered the text. It was supposed to continue on through verse 50. <laughs> but we'll read it, so that's okay. It'll be in my sermon. And uh, sorry about that, Nathan. Uh, you know, it happens to the best of us, right? So, hey, I, we're going to start with a little quiz this morning. Let's see how well you know your art, okay? Some of you are going to groan, but... See if you know the name of this painting and who painted it. Ready? There you go. Oh, it's easy, right? All right, what's the name of the painting? Last Supper. And who was the artist? Da Vinci. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful painting. It's in the city of Milan, Italy. Incredibly famous. Even those of you who don't like or know art or care much about it, you know what this painting is. I mean, just about everybody in Western civilization knows what this painting is. And here's the thing. It is so beautiful, and it is so wrong. <laughs> it is so inaccurate historically. You know, you hear me say at the beginning of many messages how important it is when we come to a passage of Scripture that we consider the what? Context, right the historical context, the cultural context, the overall biblical context within uh, that this passage resides within. If da Vinci had set the painting in proper historical con uh, context, it would have looked very differently. This first the first uh, thing in any passage is to grasp the context, and this is true here. So, for example, within the biblical context, we know that Jesus regularly accepted invitations to parties and to uh, banquets and other types of things. And sometimes they resembled a country song where Jesus had friends in low places, right? And other times it was like this one with the Pharisee. The Pharisees were the uh, kind of the more wealthy, aristocratic portion of their culture. This will not be the last meal that Jesus has in the home of a Pharisee. But if da Vinci had paid attention to the historical context, he would have known something about the Last Supper and even something that he could derive from this story. The Pharisees would have a home that oftentimes had a courtyard or maybe a, a room, a dedicated room, and either in that courtyard or that room, this is where you would go to eat your meals. And in that room or in that courtyard, this was what their equivalent to a dining room table looked like. It was what they call a triclinium. 
Um, sometimes it was built into the foundation of the stone, uh, this U-shaped type of platform. Or it was a separate piece of furniture, and, and it was in, it, really what happened here is the Greeks introduced it, you know, Alexander the Great and all that. Uh, it spread, the Romans adopted it. By the time of Jesus, it's everywhere. The Mediterranean world, all the way over to modern day Iran, North Africa. Uh, this was their equivalent to the dining room table. And there were cushions on the triclinia, and the food was placed on little tables in front of you. And you laid down, and you propped yourself up on cushions, or you were on the left-hand side, or maybe your left elbow, and you would reach across, and you would eat, and you would converse. And just knowing this helps us have insight into the Last Supper. Remember the Last Supper where it says John leaned against the breast of Jesus, the disciple that Jesus loved, leaned against his chest. Well, how do you do that with that picture of the Last Supper? You don't. You do it in this type of context. And knowing this context is important because it helps us to understand how a woman could come and, uh, you know, uh, anoint the feet of a person who's at the dinner table. They weren't like, it wasn't like it was like our children who used to, you know, all of our children probably do this at one time or another. They crawl underneath the table while we have a dinner party, you know, and they hide down there hoping to hear the juicy parts. It wasn't like that at all, okay? It was very different. There, was a, there were cushions, the food was placed, and there was an etiquette to the triclinium. At the table, you knew your societal importance. You knew your ranking within the dinner party based on where you were at and then what cushions and what uh, couch you were laying on. And so the seats were assigned, and it told something about you. The details of this story and the Last Supper narrative, they make more sense when you understand the context and keep it in mind. It helps us to understand how this story takes place. The historical context also helps us understand how this woman could even crash the party. Because in that day... Uh, if you, you know, the, when they had a big dinner party like this, they would open up the doors to the courtyard or they would open up the doors to the house and to the dining room and the people from the town could come and go even though they weren't invited to the party. Now, they didn't get the food and they didn't get the drink, but they were allowed to, to walk in and stand along the wall and because this was a, you know, I mean, they didn't have TV. They didn't have internet. What's going on over at the Joneses' house? Well, I guess the Goldbergs' house. What's going on at the Goldbergs' house, right? And they go in, and they walk in, and they just stand against the wall, and they listen to the conversation. Kind of interesting. And, and so this helps us to understand how this woman comes into this place, and she's apparently standing along the wall. And at some point, as she's listening and observing this, she approaches Jesus in the most scandalous interaction between them. The scandalous interaction occurs, and I want us to look at this interaction. I want us to see it, you know, uh, from the perspective of the main characters. You know, there's Simon, there's Jesus. Let's start with this woman, and what we see with her is the love of a forgiven sinner. Verse 37, Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table, get it now? See, reclining, you're laying down, reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. This is a scandalous interaction 
in that day, right? Scandalous because, first of all, she's known in the city as a sinner. Now, what do you think that means? Yeah. In all likelihood, she was a prostitute, or she was at least someone who had been associated with sexual sin. It was scandalous because of who she was. It was scandalous. Ladies, you'll appreciate this. It was scandalous because of what she did with her hair, because in that day, you were to have your hair covered, and it was tied up, maybe like in a braid or bun of some kind. You didn't uncover your hair. You certainly didn't untie your hair and let it go free in public. If you did, according to the Pharisees' application of the law in the Mishnah, your husband then had the right to divorce you. So every one of you women, if you had lived back then the way your hair is right now, divorce. Done. And scandalous. Uh, it was also scandalous uh, because she touches Jesus. She kisses his feet, bathes his feet with her tears, and then touches and kisses him. And by the way, uh, even today, in certain Muslim countries, especially Muslim countries that are under Sharia law, what this woman does in this story, even today, would brand a woman in those Muslim countries so that she could not marry, she could not get a job, and therefore just to survive, what do you think she ends up having to do with her life? So even today, this is scandalous. But what she does here is much more than just a scandalous breaking of social taboos. Her actions in this story are actually a grateful act of repentance and true worship. Let's think about what happens here. Here's this party. Let's imagine it for a moment. Uh, around the table, the triclinium, there are the friends of the Pharisees, probably leading citizens. Maybe there's other Pharisees. Jesus is also there. They're enjoying the meal. They're eating. They're talking and having conversation. And suddenly, this woman approaches. Now, I wonder what happens. Does, like, does the table grow quiet as they see her coming? Or do, do the people around the room start to mutter, you know, hey, what's going on with this woman? I don't, I, I don't know exactly, but you can imagine she gets everybody's attention. And this woman, this weeping, crying woman, approaches Jesus and comes in behind him and moves his robe out of the way and takes his sandals off and then leans over. And she's crying so much that the, the tears from her face are enough so that she can wash his feet from the dirt and the dust because your feet were always dirty in the ancient world. And then she takes her hair and unbinds it and she uses her hair like a towel to clean and dry his feet. And then she begins to kiss his feet. Now, this is a, this is a strange woman. I mean, let's face it, guys. Any woman who all of a sudden would, I mean, that would feel weird, right? I mean, this is a, what is going on here? And then to, she takes this flask, an alabaster flask of expensive ointment. This, you know, maybe it's myrrh or um, what is it, nard, or, uh, th those kinds of uh, highly valuable perfumes. And she just dumps the whole thing out on his feet. You know, in that day, and let's understand, again, context, it's important. Context is important. In that day, a prostitute would wear a necklace around her uh, put a necklace around her neck, and attached to that necklace was a little vial of ointment. And she would use that vial at strategic moments and times to anoint herself to, to help the seduction and enticement process with a customer. 
So if this sinful woman was indeed a prostitute, what she's actually doing here is bringing everything important in the pursuit of her trade. She brings her body. She doesn't bring just the vial. She brings the whole flask, the refill container. She brings it all, which probably represents more than a year's worth of wages. This is the most valuable asset she has, and she lays it all out at the feet of Jesus. Why would she do that? Verse 47, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Jesus uses a verb tense here in that verse to let us know that this woman had apparently already come into contact with him in some way. Uh, She had heard his preaching. Maybe it was in that town or on the outside the town on the hillside, but she had heard the teaching and she had been converted. Her sins had been forgiven and she knew it and she was overwhelmed, overwhelmed by the grace and the forgiveness that God gives that she received through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in this moment, she is laying herself and her old life at the feet of Jesus who is now her Lord You know, that that verse, verse 47, has been twisted through the years, through the centuries, by different Christian denominations or people. You know, if you look at it carefully, verse 47 in the English Standard, it says, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. What does that sound like? The reason why she was converted and forgiven is because she first loved Jesus. And that's a, a, not a good translation. I appreciate how the, the New Living gets it. The New Living, I think, uh, has it right, captures the right meaning here, helps us to understand what's happened in this woman's life. Listen to it. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven, so she has shown me much love. But a person who's forgiven little shows only little love. All of her actions are a bold and loving expression of saving faith. And she is overcome with love and gratitude towards Jesus because of the love and grace of forgiveness that God first poured out on her. So with this woman, we have the love of a forgiven sinner. But there's another sinner in this story. His name is Simon the Pharisee, and with him, we see the contempt of judgmental religion. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. In this one verse, we get real insight into Simon and why he would even invite Jesus to his home in the first place. Remember, Jesus has been butting heads already with the Pharisees. So why does Simon invite him to his home? The passage clues us in. He's trying to decide for himself if Jesus is anything more than a rabbi, a teacher. He's trying to decide, is it possible Jesus is actually a prophet? Simon's a a very religious guy. He is a Pharisee. In his eyes, 
He is a good man. Even in the eyes of his culture, he's a good, moral, upstanding man. He's engaged with the religious life of his community and the culture. And at this point, Jesus is becoming kind of a big deal. His fame is spreading. He's a rabbi and teacher of renown. And he thinks maybe he's more. Perhaps he's a prophet who I should befriend which I should pay attention to so that I can continue to make sure that I am right with God, associating with the right people so that I continue to have the right kind of life that is being blessed and clearly under God's favor. So I need to hedge my bets. I need to get to know this guy, Jesus, and see what he's like. Simon, he may have been religiously minded and socially acceptable, but this story reveals that his external goodness was a mask for internal pride and the, and the judgmentalism that we spoke about a couple of weeks ago when we talked about judging not lest you be judged. He looked at this sinful woman and he judges her. He looks at her with contempt and scorn. And the moment that Jesus interacts with her in a way that didn't fit his view of how Jesus should act towards this sinful woman, he judges that Jesus is a fraud. He is no holy man. He's certainly no prophet. Simon interacts with Jesus like so many even do in our day. So many cover their bases, hedge their bets, taking steps to establish possibly a transactional relationship with Jesus. I, I want to be in the orbit of Jesus and get those blessings and get the good things that Jesus represents. But the moment he doesn't fit their expectations, the moment he doesn't fit within their paradigm of how Jesus should behave towards them or towards him, the world or how his gospel interacts with issues of our day, the moment that conflict occurs, they decide it's Jesus who's the fraud. Jesus is the problem, never themselves. So Simon concludes this about Jesus. And ironically, because Jesus is actually so much more than a prophet, which that was the best Jesus could be in this Pharisee's mind, because he's actually so much more than that, Jesus knows what Simon is thinking. And so he gives them a very short but profound parable, the verses that I accidentally left off for you earlier. Verse 40. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Let's pause right there for just a moment. Have you ever noticed, even here in the book of Luke and of course in the gospels themselves, that whenever Jesus begins to ask a question of somebody, the red alert siren should start blaring in the mind of that person because it's not going to be good. There's an uncomfortable moment coming here. And what's about to, be ha what's about to happen to Simon is, well, maybe in some respects, we kind of watch it with a little sense of glee and self-satisfaction. Maybe 
a tinge of self-righteousness. But here we go. Which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose from whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Simon is so focused with his religious pride on her past record of who this woman was, he could not see the present predicament of his own soul. In the parable, the person who owed the 500 talents, the equivalent of about 18 months worth of income, the person who owed 18 months of income corresponds to who? The woman. The person who owed Basically, two months of wages is who? Simon. And at first glance, it seems like he is in the better position than she is because her debt is so much greater. But don't miss this, church. In actuality, Simon is in the same boat that she occupies. They are both headed to debtor's prison. They both do not have the ability to satisfy their debt. They will both die in that prison if somebody does not graciously step in and pay that debt. That's the way it worked back then. So while one person's debt may seem less than the other, it doesn't matter because you're gonna both end up in the same place. Simon is in the parable. Simon is in, is in the parable the debtor, who seemed to be in better shape, but actually he is not. And the woman, the sinful woman, is in the parable as the debtor, who seems to be in much worse shape, but in actuality, she is not. And of course, Jesus is also in this parable. So let's finish out. We've seen it, how the woman and how Simon relate. Now let's look at Jesus, the source of eternal restoration and transformation. Now remember what's going on here. Simon wants to know if Jesus is a prophet or not, so he approaches Jesus with an intellectual curiosity. Maybe there is something about this guy that is legit that I can learn from him so that my life can continue on the track that it's on, maybe even get a better life. But he's not convinced about Jesus in any way. He doesn't even extend, and here's how you know it, he doesn't even extend to Jesus the basic hospitality of that day. He doesn't give him a basin to wash his feet. He doesn't greet him with a kiss. He doesn't put a kind of an ointment on. All of these were like our 
hug and handshake and slap on the back, welcome into our house, can I get you something to drink? Those customs that we all have, you can, you know, Mike, Mike, me casa, you casa, except for the remote control, all of those things that we do, right, to communicate hospitality, he does none of them. And so it's obvious that he's hedging his bets here. And so when Jesus responds to this woman, as he does, no doubt internally, Simon is really relieved that he did not make a fool of himself in front of his friends by making a big deal about Jesus. Clearly, he should never have been invited. Simon concludes that Jesus is no prophet like Jeremiah or Joel or John the Baptist. And in one respect, church, he's correct. Because Jesus is so much more than a prophet or a great teacher, the way our world wants to see him. In the parable, Jesus is also present. Simon's there, the woman's there, Jesus is there. Jesus is the one who is owed the debt. And Jesus is the one who pays the debt. And what is that debt? What does that debt correspond to in our lives? Our sin. In verse 48, Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sin? In other words, who does this man think he is? That he thinks he can forgive sin. And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Simon and the rest of the people at that meal, they understood something correctly. That only God has the authority. Only God has the right and the power to forgive sins. Simon's right. Jesus is no mere prophet. He's so much more than a human prophet or a great teacher. And the good news from this story is that because he is so much more than a great prophet or a teacher, he never shuns humble and repentant sinners the way Simon and the overtly religious so often do. Jesus doesn't shun sinners because he is the one true God who forgives the, our great debt of sin. And how does he do this? How does he de, erase this debt? Church, debts are not magically erased. They don't just magically disappear. A company in debt goes to the bank. The bank doesn't just say, well, you know what? No harm, no foul. Everything's white clean. Absolutely not. Debts have to be paid for the books to balance. So how does he do this? He forgives the debt by paying for the debt himself. The debt of our sin, the scriptures tell us, the wages of our sin is death. As we read this morning in the scripture passage, God caused him to die so that our sins can be forgiven and he raised him to life so that we could have eternal life with him. He who knew no sin became sin for us. God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
I was visiting with one of our shut-ins this week, and this dear lady, she has a, if you go to her home, she's always going to have you go into her garage and write a scripture verse. So some of you know who I'm talking about. And she has, and she, uh, covering her garage walls, the ceiling, now it's the floor and even the back of the garage door, there are Bible verses that people have written out. She'll ask you, write one of your favorite Bible verses on there. And she knew I had done it before and we found it. It was on the air handler, but it had been kind of covered over by some pipes. And on that time, 15 years ago, I had written 1 John 2.28. But this time, I wrote what I just gave to you. God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and the debt is erased. The books are balanced because he paid that debt with his life. Some of you this morning, I'm sad to say that some of you this morning, I'm certain at least one here are Simon. All of your external goodness and religious activity that you are involved in has blinded you to the truth. Your sin puts you in the same boat as the very worst example of scandalous, contemptible sin that happens in our society. Think of the very worst person in our history and you're still in the same boat with them. You're Simon in the sense that you have yet to acknowledge Jesus for who he is. You're Simon because when you objectively look at your life, you do not conclude that apart from Christ, apart from the Holy Spirit's grace in your life, you are a desperate sinner who needs God's forgiveness. And the evidence that this is what you think is very simple. You want to know how you can know that you are Simon? It's simple. You don't love Jesus. You don't love Jesus. He's an intellectual exercise in religious activity. He's someone that you admire his teachings and you admire his life and you admire and you appreciate the kind of life following his ethical commands gives you. You look at how great it is to be in a Christian community and all the things it gets you. And I like this kind of life. Jesus is my bro. He's my buddy. He's my homeboy. And you can say all these kinds of ideas and think them in your heart. And why can you do that? Because you don't see yourself as a desperate sinner who needs God's forgiving grace, and therefore, you don't love him. You do not love him. Teenager, teenagers, do you love Jesus? Young adults, do you love Jesus? Mom and dads, do you love Jesus? Lifelong church members. Some of us have been in church since we were in diapers and we don't even know what life is like apart from the community of God. Do you love Jesus?
newcomers. We're so glad that you're with us this morning. And I hope you understand that God did not bring you here by accident. He wants you to hear then answer the question, do you love Jesus? When you experience the love and grace of God's forgiveness for your sins, the natural heartfelt response is to love Jesus and to express that love in submissive, praiseworthy worship and to express it in sacrificial service to the one who paid your debt. Do you love Jesus? That's awesome. Yeah. Out of the mouth of babes. Amen. You know, sadly, even some of us who have committed our lives to Jesus, and we would say we love Jesus and we follow him, you know, it's still possible at times that it's not, in fact, it's not possible, it's fact. We all resemble Simon at times, don't we? Our love for Jesus wars with our fallen nature. We resort out of just, out of natural habit, we resort to works righteousness. Our love for Jesus is something that we leverage in our relationship with Jesus. We try to use it to get a life that we want, to make sure our kids have the life that they, what we want them to have. And, and then when, when things don't work out the way we want them to, we get angry at Jesus or we get disillusioned and bitter because he didn't fit our paradigm. No, no different than Simon, the Simons of the world. It happens to every one of us. Truthfully, if we are spiritually honest, and hopefully this is your testimony, every one of us would say at different times we're Simon and other times, hopefully, we're the sinful, repentant woman. This is the life of somebody who's actually a believer. I appreciate a, a story that Philip Ryken shares, a quote from his, a book of his about John Newton. We all know who John Newton was. He wrote the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. He says, John Newton is famous for writing Amazing Grace, which is a hymn of gratitude for sins forgiven. But Newton did not find it easy to love Jesus any more than most of us do. Quote, so much forgiven, so little, little love. He wrote just a few weeks before composing his famous hymn. So many mercies, so few returns, such great privileges, and a life so sadly below them. This war between our fallen nature, Christian, and our new creation, this is why we need the Lord's table. This is why we come to it this morning, to be reminded of how much we have been forgiven so that our lagging love, our cold love, our lukewarm love, like the churches in the book of Revelation, so that that lagging, lukewarm love can be reinvigorated. The table reminds us of how much and at what cost we have been forgiven. 
And at the table, we hear those final words that Jesus gave to the woman. You, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. And so this is why we come to the table this morning. Because some of us here this morning, if we are honest, our love has grown lukewarm. It's lagging. We need the ministry of the Holy Spirit that is present here. We understand that when we come to the Lord's table, Jesus is with us. He's feeding us. He's stirring up to remembrance the love that he has poured out upon us on the cross. He's giving us a visible reminder of why we symbolically fall at his feet, cry over them, clean them, and pour out our lives to him and serve and worship him as Lord. This table reminds us that our debt was paid through his broken life. And so Christian, regardless if right now your love is hot or your love is lagging, this table is for you this morning. This table is for imperfect Christians and people who look to Jesus, which pretty much describes every Christian in this room. Now, sadly, this table is not for Simon. It's not for the person who doesn't love Jesus, who has not committed their life to Jesus, who isn't following Jesus. This table is for those who have fallen at his feet and poured out their offering of life and everything. It's for the one who knows him as Lord and Savior. Instead, if you are Simon this morning, this table is meant to provoke you, to, to encourage you. Even today can be the day of salvation where you turn from yourself and you confess to Jesus your sin and you embrace him as the Lord of your life that he actually already is because he's Lord of everything. And so when we take the table this morning, if you're a Christian and you know Jesus as Savior, you're welcome. You don't have to be a member of our church and you certainly don't have to be perfect before God through your own effort. If you want to come to this table this morning, we welcome you to come, depending upon his grace. And at the same time, we want to come, to the best of our knowledge, clean. The scriptures tell us that this is a sacred moment. It's a sacrament. And therefore, we take a few moments to examine ourselves. The reason we announce it a week ahead of time is so that we can spend time examining ourselves, praying, and so that the best of our knowledge, we are not holding on to sin, refusing to repent. If you're refusing to repent of your sin, this table this morning is meant to provoke you to repent. So instead of taking, repent, so that next month you can take. Let's bow our heads together for a few moments. And in quiet, internal prayer, confess whatever sin you know of, ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to reveal to you those areas that you have been holding on to that you have not confessed and repented of.